This is Shaka Wart Speak. So Gareth is eating uh, pudding. <laughs> I just want everybody to know that. I brought it. I, so I Gareth, Gareth got, Gareth's mustache is always getting better. <laughs> this is how we're starting the episode. So welcome <laughs> to Shaka Wart Speak. So good to be here with you all. Yeah, we're, we're uh, Gareth has a great mustache. It keeps getting better. And he's got a little bit of a Dolly Hercule. <laughs> Hercule Poirot kind of uh, upturn to the left and the right side. And uh, so I brought him some pudding because I thought it would be great to see how he doesn't get pudding on his mustache while he's eating it. Um, This is so random, but that's what happened. But see, here's the thing. This is something that, you know, letting all y'all into a little bit of personal secret. I'm a a notoriously clean eater. Yes, he is. (laughs) Um, I don't like napkins. Yep. Um, So... But I do love snack packs, yep. so I'm totally killing this thing right yeah, now. Don't have a problem with it. It's demolishing it right now. So we're <laughs> so that's the visual for today. I think they're they're bigger than when I was a kid. Yeah, that's the that's the exciting news is they're taller. Yeah, please make those deluxe size. The thing with I, is there there's a lot of great junk food, but there is just something about pudding. You're right. <laughs> there just is. It's pleasing in almost every possible way. It abs. It's yeah. It's just strange. I mean, I. You put some dough and then some pudding in the center and call it a, a pie. You know, those dollar ones. Man, I was still. even thinking about like the kind of the cheap uh, cream filled donuts. Yeah. Where you're like, is this just pudding? Yeah. It's pudding. Oh, inside. I love that. That's a yeah. win for me. Down That's an absolute score. So we're here. We're going to do this is kind of the third part. I think this is the last part yeah. of our. Yeah, you never know. We <laughs> might just uncork another layer by the end of this. But. Um, just on the, the, so the, the kind of the logical progression of, of the confidence piece. So we, we talked about like confident, like where do you, you know, the summary question for the first episode is like, where do you get your confidence as a maker and kind of going back and defining that. So if you haven't heard that episode, do listen to it, take, take a check. That's, uh, from our uh, brother, can you spare some confidence episode one and then or the part one and then part two kind of flowed from the confidence piece to some of the other indicatives that are indicative of that are that are uh, contentment and curiousness. And uh, uh, I forget what I always think there's a third thing that I'm missing, but no, that was it. Yeah. Contentment and curiousness. And so kind of creating a milieu. Now the thing is, these are not hard and fast rules that we're kind of forcing. We're just trying to take, okay, so I think if anything, our podcast has always sought to take a non-neutral stance, meaning we are jumping into the stream and saying, we think that at a bare minimum, nothing is, this is the most provocative thing we might say, but nothing is neutral. And we're trying to take account of where we stand in the mix of the non-neutrality of the world. And I mean, the other thing with that is like, It doesn't matter how neutral you try to be. You always have an opinion that lands you one side or the other. On yeah. That. If you, that's, there's that's nothing right. wrong with that. No, it, yeah. it's actually a very helpful part of conversation. Sure. You can say, Hey, in this conversation, I step out. That has an effect. Mm-hmm. You stepping out has an effect. It's not a neutral. It's not like absent. Uh, even your absence has a consequence. So like there's something interesting about the fact that in every moment there are choices to be made that have a, a effect and an outcome and a consequence in every possible direction. Right. Um, so it also doesn't assume that just because you said something that you're assuming rightness with that's that. That's right. Right. Um, within any conversation, 
I can be totally wrong. You can be totally wrong. Yes. Happen. We could be in that space. Yep. Um, but we don't actually find out like rightness and wrongness or goodness or badness or whatever way you kind of want to define it um, until we actually step into it and yep. start to try those things and right. really push against them. So that's one of the things of this podcast. I think if if we it might be okay to say now after a year plus of doing this, <laughs> um, is we have just brought the kinds of conversations that we have yeah. both with each other and other people. So a lot of times we're thinking it out on air. Um, you know, we're we're not really scripted. We have goals. You know, we talk prior, but a lot of it's like trying to just kind of have a real conversation, I guess, without. Uh, without feeling the fear of offending. Yeah. So trying to be responsible thinkers and mindful, um, but also not neutral to the point that we're brought to a passive place where we can't say anything and Mm -hmm. risk it. You know, uh, the discourse has suffered greatly. And and so we're just playing our small role in doing that. And so, um, so as we look at these conversations, we move to this third part, um, and each one has kind of alluded to the other, and there was uh, mention of responsibility. Yeah. Take, taking, you know, it sounds like a get. Who wants to talk about this? I mean, this sounds <laughs> terrible. Um, so I just dare you to listen. Basically, yeah. <laughs> I feel like anybody who's listening at this point is either is just like waiting for the train wreck to to finish, or you're secretly compelled. <laughs> and either way, we're excited you're listening. Yeah, because <laughs> we're 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 in both of those lanes as well. We're kind of waiting yeah. for the train wreck to finish or we're, we're still secretly compelled to. So I guess uh, we're all in it together. So what we want to talk about today, flowing from the other two, is uh, um, responsibility taking, like taking responsibility, being a responsible culture maker. Sounds like what you're saying is um, joy kill. <laughs> you know, go back to last episode. I, I think one more kind of plot point to kind of bring forward is we talked about the buckets of uh, hedonism or extreme pleasure seeking happiness, fulfillment, like put a lot of those positives into that bucket. And when we said was that bucket is really full. And then the two that are dry are purpose and meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes there's lip service given to purpose and meaning and it's self-assigned to ensure that the first bucket, which is pleasure stays overflowing. Mm -hmm. So in that kind of framework, um, responsibility taking definitely sounds like it demands the other two buckets have something in them. And it also can sound like, uh, I'm not gonna, it's not gonna fill up my pleasure bucket. Yeah. Cause so anyhow, cause you think of your parents telling you to take responsibility or whatever, depending on what generation you are or what your upbringing was, mm-hmm. that can mean a whole bunch of different stuff. So we kind of want to tease that out, see if it plays out in a way it's meaningful. Um, and, see how that corresponds with being curious, being responsible, being creative. I mean, is this resting in a kind of content confidence to do so? Um, and so anyhow, we want to kind of plot that out. Gareth is going to, um, you know, I did ask Gareth like, cause Gareth has done his PhD work and done extensive work in certain areas that I think are really relevant to this topic. So, um, there's a lot of stuff that he knows that I just don't know. And so, um, we're going to try to come at it pretty cleanly from a designer's historical lens and practitioner lens and from a contemporary artist lens. I know we often agree, but we're really <laughs> going to try to be in our, in our, uh, we're going to try to be like really, really in our 
categories, I guess. And we'll see how long we can hold on to that for. What do you think, Gareth? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm game for it. Um, I'm going to try really, really hard to disagree with you today, Ryan. Okay. Um, <laughs> just going to throw it out there. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting, right? Because when I hear the word responsibility, it's, you know, I have the same sort of uh, feelings that you're talking about here where it's like, oh, is that one of those kind of like, you know, uh, suck it up and do it better sort of things, you know, where it's like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. They're on the same sort of sort of space where it's like, oh, yeah, it's super easy to say. It's totally vague and you're just kind of being, you know, um, heavy handed. Um, but um, I think that one thing that I can say, and I'll say a blanket statement and then kind of unpack this blanket statement, at least within the discourse of design, there has never been a period in the history of design discourse where people haven't assumed that we have a responsibility as makers, the issue has always been to what end is that responsibility? Where is that responsibility going? Who are we serving with it? What does it look like? Now there's always a responsibility built into making. That's always been a point of it. So um, when I started going through the doctoral program, uh, I kept getting assigned these different books uh, and I would read them and there was always this very, kind of arbitrary and vague language of goodness where people would talk about good design and they'd say it over and over again within huge different differing contexts. And I was just like, this is honestly just pissing me off because I don't know what you mean because in one moment people are talking about goodness and form. People are talking about goodness and function. People are talking about goodness and utility. People are talking about goodness as an economic thing, right? They're talking about all of these different things, but they keep telling me that it's my responsibility to be, doing good design, making good design, even though they're not really defining what that is. So the entire dissertation I wrote was about unpacking a hundred years of that dialogue and saying, what do these look like? Um, so I think that's kind of the, the place I want to start is that I, I would push anybody. I mean, and if, and if you disagree with this, please let us know, but I would push anybody, um, to, to tell me that you don't believe there's responsibility in what we do. I think the conversation really comes down to how we parse that responsibility out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what are we responsible to? Who are we responsible to? That's, that's a bigger question uh, in some ways, or maybe not a bigger question. Maybe it's a more provocative question um, because it does start to get at the specific specifics of it. Um, so I might even want to back up a little bit and say, when we talk about responsibility and making, like where are we kind of getting that from? Or maybe who are some of the bigger voices that, would push towards that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, now I don't know that within, you know, painting and the things that you deal with, but, uh, if you're talking about people like Victor Margolin, Victor Papanek, uh, Paul Rand, like all these folks talked about responsible, responsible making, you go back to William Morris. I mean, the guy who's kind of a, the first person within kind of American modernism, right. In terms of the whole spectrum of things. And he's sitting there and all he's talking about is responsibility in terms of what he's doing. So he's saying, Oh, uh, we need to be responsible to the things we make and how they live and what it looks like and how they affect people's homes and lives. So it's always been a part of the conversation. I mean, that's why I love this setup because where you're coming from, um, you, you know, you did a whole dissertation that entails some of this conversation because it's more firmly rooted in, in, uh, the discourse and principles around design. We think about architecture, interior design, industrial design, because there's a, a more of a necessary wedding to other, I suppose. I, if, yeah. you know, so 
in the reverse, there's that avant-garde. So it's well. When would you say design? I mean, how, how far back do you go when you think about what we understand as design and broad? How, so that's how, tough, right? Because yeah. if you look at some of the sort of art historical books that kind of found design, a lot of them will do what they do, and they'll say that you know design and mark making and drawing all came about as an as a prehistory human yeah. activity in some incipient way. Sure, yeah, uh, which it feels a little watered down. Yeah, it feels a little tough. Now, if we're talking about like the uh, wholly encompassing nature of art and design within culture throughout human history, then yes, great. It's not that helpful when we start right. talking about the differences. So I think really, if, if we want to pinpoint a really helpful spot for when design came about, when it actually kind of, some people would say separated from other fields, yep. or I, I would say it was a coalescence of other fields. Um, you're seeing this around the Industrial Revolution in the United that's States. That's what I thought. Yeah, that's, um, you're that's getting good. You're in 1870s, 1880s. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. you're seeing it there because you're starting to see things like uh, print shops. Yep. Um, you're starting to see people who are doing things um, like Toulouse-Lautrec, right? Yep. So they're they're making printed pieces for marketing or advertising. They're also mm-hmm. doing things that are very expressive, mm-hmm. right? There are the, the mechanization of uh, creative design work is... Um, the cost of it is reduced so much yep. that now I can take license in the way that I set my type for mm-hmm. a book. I can change things. I can create new typefaces. Um, so really it's about the 1870s, 1880s where I would pinpoint that. Yeah, no, I, 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 that's good. I agree. So then what, so what I wanted to say then is if you go turn of the century, you see the, um, possibly a kind of, um, action reaction, which creates, um, Further clarification, I, you know, Toulouse-Lautrec is hanging out with other fine artists, right? But his his he so he's claimed by designers and fine artists. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like when you look at the canon of art history, so he's really interesting in that way. When you when you factor in these kind of, um, you know, there's like the difference between a forty five and a forty four degree angle. Mm-hmm. They're going to uh, endlessly create more space, which is filled in with more possibility in a, in a positive sense. But so with that, you what you get is why you have your commercial artists like your mm-hmm. you know even like Warhol was a commercial artist for a while and then he yeah. he veered course, um, you know nineteen hundred forward, you start to get a, um, a move in the arts in like say studio painting or whatever sculpting uh, that um, is benefited in some way possibly by moving away from the burden that is being taken up by uh, design, commercial design and so on. But then, then, the, then the existential burden is taken on by painting to be this kind of um, linguistic means to uniting people around a kind of uh, uh, humanistic mm-hmm. reemergence, kind of like a new human sort of idea, this kind of a utopic ideal or whatever. And what breaks in that is your kind of postmodern schism, sort of the failure of that. So then what kicks forward is a scaled down version of that same aspiration. It's an avant-garde um, pursuit of happiness for the individual, not so much with corporate implications, but just personal implications. Mm-hmm. And so the responsibility of what happens in a studio becomes far more idiosyncratic. And there's a lot of, 
really, really um, expressive stuff that comes out um, that in hindsight can be picked at and looked at and digested and so on. But the, the, the thrust is um, personal exploration. Yeah. Um, and then for, therefore like personal definition on defining um, what is acceptable or not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a difficult thing to generate. So more artists are reactionary than they are right. visionary, uh, truthfully. And so there, a lot of that is catalyzed by being told no. Mm-hmm. So there's a need to have a creative class that sets rules that say no. So then somebody can say, um, screw you, I'm going to make this. So there's, you know, so there's something about the way these are driving each other forward into like our current kind of situation, I guess. And they're kind of held as ism. So to talk about responsibility in this kind of like space that we're kind of starting to plot out is really interesting because, um, without sort of an origins of how we've sort of gotten here, um, it seems odd to have the conversation, but the point is we I guess the big point to go back and unpack for why we should have this conversation is the very fact that that um, nothing was neutral or arbitrary in terms of how we got to here, right. which is why we have to ask the question or I think consider reasonably what it means to take responsibility. And both sort of ends of the continuum, if you will, deserve to be under scrutinization mm-hmm. and, 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 and revisited to see where it could coalesce or, or um, you know, we could throw things out and give ourselves a new vision of what the future can look like. And certainly this is the time to do it because oh, yeah, uh, the world is changing and it's been, um, it's been, it's been, uh, what do you call it? Fast tracked into a trajectory it was already on. Right. Like the COVID, COVID-19 is fast tracking where it seems like the globe was headed, headed anyways. So what does it yeah. mean to make in the context of this? taking responsibility with what's in front of us mm-hmm. regarding who is with us. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, it's, um, and it's interesting, right? Because we, we've talked a lot about how we are like culture makers and culture builders. Um, but when we start to look into, especially a conversation like this, uh, within, uh, art history, we actually start to see how much that is a reality because we start to see how much, um, throughout the past, these different uh, movements or periods or whatever they are, were really about saying, looking at the culture and saying, I'm not sure if this is helpful. Hey, artists, here's a call to arms. Mm-hmm. Let's make a new future. Now, you spoke about, you know, like utopianism and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, we see this in things very easily and very um uh, you know, especially around, you know, the 1920s to 1950s, you see a, a huge amount of manifestos from different groups. So you've got your futurists, you've got mm-hmm. your Bauhaus folks, you've got all these people mm-hmm. who are very much saying, what this is right now we don't like. Mm-hmm. Let's change it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it is that reactionary force, yep. um, which makes you then kind of ask, like, why did they feel the need to be reactionary? Yeah. Why did they yeah, yeah. feel the need to do anything different? Why couldn't they just be happy sitting in there? You know, they're artists, uh, sheds and studios and just doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there is something kind of within a lot of folks I've spoken with. I know it's something with me that there's like a, there's an internal drive or desire to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and along with that, 
um, which is something backed up like with a lot of the design discourse is there's also desire to know that the things you're making are not actually, that they're actually helpful in some way as a broad term, mm-hmm. right? That they are enjoyed or can make you think or mm-hmm. can provide um, a bit of escape during a bad day mm-hmm. or help you dig into the bad day so you understand it more, right? There's, there's something about that. We want to do good. We want to not do harm. Um, and I think a lot of makers are kind of in that space, mm-hmm. but we don't, we don't spend enough time with that to really understand it, yeah. what that means. Yep. And to look at that, that, there is some responsibility to the making, mm-hmm. which I think is another part of the responsibility conversation. It's not just responsibility to society, like maybe the conversation of the last 50, 60 years, sure. but there's a responsibility to the process of making, to the career of making, right? There's mm-hmm. a responsibility to your fellow makers. There's a lot of responsibilities in there mm-hmm. that we can talk about. Yeah. So it can because get pretty you, confusing. Yeah, it can get confusing because I mean, what what um, one of the there's a many outcomes. One of the outcomes is like what you do does affect other people, and you you can't gauge the time and place of when it will affect. Always, you might be wrong, but um, there, that it ha- that that's in the equation, you know. So, um, give you like a real anecdotal example uh, for me, just as like an illustration. It, when I um, when I taught, I taught at a school called Elk Grove Elementary. I was a Warhol Grant Foundation recipient, mm-hmm. and so we were. Um, I mean, I might have told this story before. I can't recall, but so forgive me if this is redundant. But um, when I when I came there, so what happened was the school the the schools you know the arts are always thrown out, and so this amazing person Jerry Keskes. Dr. Jerry Keskes, um, who's awesome, um, got this grant stuff together and then got a musician, a, pro- a studio artist, and a actor to teach, supplementally teach, and develop curriculum for K through sixth grade. Mm. And so um, as they had to be actual practitioners, people that are really doing it, and you know, master's level doing it, doing the work. Yeah. So I had the privilege of being able to do this and um, the kids were so impacted, you know, um, that they processed their excitement for what I was teaching by emulating me. Hmm. And so one of the ways that little kids emulated me, which was, was to write a tattoo on their right arm. Cause I had a tattoo, have a tattoo in my right arm. Yeah. So I never thought much about it. You know, I have some tattoos where I grew up, I'm, family is very tattooed. But, um, at this point I was kind of like, you know, like at the day I was teaching, I don't know that I'd get all my tattoos that I have. Like I might probably wouldn't have. So I've gone through a change in my perspective on the tattoos. So it's like there, but you don't think about it. You're not terribly excited about it. That's where I was at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I started seeing little kids with tattoos on the right arm, drawing them on. And, uh, it immediately caused me to realize that my responsibility was bigger than merely um, accounting for an outcome in the narrowest sense of I taught you this, therefore you can do it. It it was broad. It was my image. It was understanding the psychology of people enough to realize like I didn't feel like that was what I, I didn't want the responsibility of an unintended consequences like them appropriating my image out of admiration for what they were learning without realizing that I myself would not project this image to them if I had 
means to do it differently. Yeah. So I started wearing a wristband um, over my over my tattoo, like a basketball player, because yeah. yeah, I used to play. Mm-hmm. And so it was so weird. Teachers would just look at me weird, like, why is he wearing that? But I didn't want them to... Uh, yeah. I wanted them to rechannel that. So it's funny, some kids started wearing wristbands on their arms. Um, but it, it, it really did something to me. It, it, it uh, impacted me. And I just didn't want that to be my, like that's not what I wanted the influence to land on. Um, I wanted yeah. to, So it meant that I worked harder to channel responsibly their excitement back into themselves, into their goals, and into um, maybe the more intangible aspects to emulate, which is like, kind of your character like you know i'm like you know be a thoughtful person be care be caring be you know like i tried to tune those up so they could grab onto those and take those into their own personality and they can make choices in the future you know i can only stretch that story so far but that's all that's all true and that's all that's all what happened and and, and so some in some kind of way I, I think that that never stops being true for artists otherwise you know, the, the amount of artists hobbyist artists that exists in the world that excuse themselves in all their behavior by saying, I'm, I'm high, you know, I'm highly creative. Therefore I'm always, now you got to understand I'm not, I'm a pretty messy person it, without the help of my wife, Laura, and a lot of work always. Um, a lot of our arguments are on me not cleaning up my side of the bed. And so, I mean, I, you know, I'm always contending with that. So I'm not saying that as someone that's better than now, but, um, the amount of sort of Instagram has really shown this. This has always been there. Sentimental hobbyists that make art, that ex- use art to excuse all their character flaws, right? That I'm flighty, I'm um, eccentric, I'm, you know, I'm very emotional. In, in the grounds, is, it's because I'm an artist. I'm messy because I'm an artist. Yeah. I, you know, um, I'm, can't I'm never on time because I'm an artist. I'm. It's like I'm an artist becomes a catch-all for all these things that, uh, you know, this average person can't relate to. It's like, well, I got to get the job on time. Like I can't relate to you saying that. And what it does is that lack of responsibility taking over your own life and cloaking it in the moniker of I'm an artist has meant that society thinks artists are derelict, irresponsible, flighty, not connected with reality. I mean, how many times have you seen that stereotype capitulated in TV yeah. shows and on, so, yeah, right? Well, where did that come from? Well, uh, people start to gravitate towards that image of an artist. And I'm using one stereotype, but they gravitate towards that image of an artist and all of a sudden it becomes a truth mm-hmm. that is uh, self-fulfilling. And all the while, um, it's just a giant excuse for a lot of dereliction. Yeah. And um, I was there. Mm-hmm. You know, I was... I was uh, um, I love the idea when I first got serious about painting that it was like this crazy excuse for all my shortcomings. It was like, this is awesome. Like what I suck at now has a way of it. it like make, I can make it sense. I can make it make sense. Mm-hmm. I'm messy because I'm an artist. I'm in, I ran through all of them. I was uh, every bit the cliche. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know. remember the, the, I mean the first, I don't know, the two years of master's work for me <clears throat> was very much, um, Oh, you can just be just off the wall weird. Yeah. And why? Because, well, that's what people expect. Yep. No, it was, um, you know, it's, as you're talking, the thing that just kind of hits me is, um, 
there, there is a, a stereotype and there are a lot of people who feel kind of the temptation to move into the space where, um, the moniker of artist allows us to remove responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you and I would agree, surprise, on this question of like, but what does it look like if we are to assume that society is actually pleading for artists to take up such a level of responsibility that we become the people within our communities that we always kind of thought artists should be? Yeah, that's terrifying because what that means is not everybody yeah. that gets to sit, that says that an artist is one. Yeah, it's also terrifying because it means that uh, my work is not just mark making. Yeah. You know, but in, but on one level, it's super easy because all of us know there's plenty of conversation out there about the fact that regardless of what you do, you should be a good neighbor. Yeah. That you should be, you know, a kind person. Right. right. You know, there's there's discussions of those types of responsibility yeah. that are interwoven throughout a That's lot right. of cultural dialogue. Yeah. Where it says this is no different than that. Yeah. A depth of character. But if we're talking about the the things uh, that form... Um, the tangible aspects of our culture that people touch and see and feel and put in their space. If we're talking about those things being created, then we, we have to get to a spot where the responsibility is big enough where we, we can't be okay with just saying, I'm going to shirk that responsibility. Yeah. Cause I, mean, I think some of the discontentment comes from that. Right. Right. Because it's like, it's, it's like uh, when you're a kid, your parents are about to come home. They told you, you better have the kitchen clean. You know they're about to be there, and you're suddenly feeling discontent. Why? Because you didn't do it. Because you, right. you you dropped the responsibility. Yep. There's something there that isn't the responsibility itself, but the lack of it. There's the lack of taking it up, and that's where we talked about last episode about the ordinary ordinary making. Yeah, <clears throat> sets up a rhythm that is proportionate to your ability to take responsibility for it. Yeah. And so what that does is over time that creates a greater likelihood of something special happening. Yeah, but you don't live or die by. Uh, an extraordinary special thing because you're you're uh, steadily sta- satiated and steadily satiating to the level that you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, like there's folks that, that right now can take uh, their, their, their mode of practice is such that they can make ink drawings, you know, eight by 10 where they, you know, it's, it's heavily line based and contour based and it's, cartoon base or is satirical to the political climate or, or whatever. And, and that's sort of what they can do. And there's a piece about it. And so then that is the thing that they do. And then it's interesting when, when people have that kind of contentment, oftentimes you find people making things and like they're um, now I'm not saying there's not seasons of discontent. Oh yeah. Definitely. Right. So it's not to say that we're perfectly statically content. It's just to say that the, our baselines should probably be more like that than irrational, kind of helter-skelter, extreme depression, um, which I suffered with. Uh, I think you've had two in the past. Like, So it's like, yeah. um, you know, the positive responsibility taking, I, I, like think of gardening. Like you, you got to kind of do it in rhythm and seasons. And, you know, when you do it, produces fruit um, or vegetables. And those can turn into spectacular things on a plate mm-hmm. during a awesome dinner party with unlikely guests you never would have expected to show up. And now there's a friendship that's born. And out of that friendship, now there's a collaborative project that's born. Like you can imagine the generativity that runs through taking responsibility. But, if, you know, but at the same time, like not taking responsibility at the garden 
can leave you either with nothing or with some crummy things that you have to doctor up and compensate for. And, and the enriched, I'm using this as a metaphor, but the enriched dinner um, is lacking in such a way that you can't account for what was missed because you never got to, um, you like when the work is working, you don't have to worry about it or think about it. And it frees people to a more um, a clarified and beneficial space. But if you're eating, okay, so if you're at a dinner party and the meal sucks, you are contending as a guest with the meal and the guilt you feel for how terrible it is while looking across from the hostess, right? Yeah. Like those are possibilities. Well, I'm saying that with art too, right? So when, when you're responsible with cultivating your practice, um, it takes that awkwardness out of the equation in human, human interaction. And in place of that, because nothing is neutral, opportunity is, is, uh, is more enlarged. It's, it's opened up. And um, what happens in that is, is up for grabs depending on what trajectory you're on and who, who you're with. But um, to your point, I think, yeah, when we're not taking responsibility and it's not running in these ordinary rhythms of life, then, um, then that's when the anxiety kicks in. That's when the uh, discontentment kicks in. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and there's seasons where you're like discontent because you're like, I have, I have done the level that I can for long enough that I'm being compelled to level up. Yeah. And that's a good thing. You know, yeah, I think it's, it's a, a fantastic thing. thing. So, yeah. I think, you know, cause another thing that people might be hearing, um, in this conversation is it's like, okay, Ryan and Gareth, you're telling me be responsible as a maker. Okay, great. How do I just jump into that? Yeah. Well, but I don't think I don't want that to be what's being heard. Mm-hmm. All right. Instead, what I want to uh, be heard is that this is a, a kind of reality of making, um, and, you know, at least for me, from a design standpoint, it's a reality of making not just from my experience, but based on the historical discourse of the field. Mm-hmm. This has always been understood. Um, and so, you know, you talk about gardens a lot and I talk about um, kind of like going to the gym um, as my kind of metaphor of choice often. And it's, um, you know, if you've got if you've got 20 people in the gym, they're all exercising mm-hmm. in some way. Somebody might have just some you know, ankle weights on and they're on a treadmill. Somebody might have like four or five plates on a bar and they're just doing some heavy lifting. They're all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're doing it in different levels to their capacity, but they're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And nobody's going into the gym and saying, yeah, exercise isn't important. They're all there and they're all in agreement about that. Mm -hmm. And they're doing the activity in the ways that they can. Now that person who just got some ankle weights on and they're just slowly going along on the treadmill four or five years down the road, who knows, whatever, they could be the person lifting a whole bunch of weight. They could be running marathons. They could be doing something else that we view as, you know, more heavy lifting, so to speak. Um, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the same way that when we talk about responsible making is like, you might say, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think you just, you start, Mm -hmm. right. There's a responsibility there and just, you know, I start with the making um, yeah, I think I think that's why I said I think that's why I said in the last episode that um, you have to get you have to just come to terms with its per, its um, you have to remove two roadblocks. One is I need approval. Yeah, at an extreme level, the like we've talked about over and over again, and the other is you gotta you gotta remove the roadblock of like is this a worthy thing to be doing or not? Yeah, I mean you, you just gotta start from the space. It's just a good st- thing, and you have permission yeah, to do it. You have permission to do it, and um, you. Your responsibility taking is not fully anticipating the endless ways people are going to respond. And it's not saving the world either. Yeah. And it's not saving the world. 
and and it's also not assuring success. It's yeah. not assuring that everyone's going to love you. So you, you remove all those things, and then you make, and you're free. You're free to the process. You're free to um, ask questions, explore, be curious, be content, and and give it time because most things that are cultivated take time. Mm-hmm. And then as you're working, your responsibility is an ongoing relationship to the practice that is properly or well constrained to also the the vitality of your ordinary life in relationship to your neighbor, your family, your friends, your partner, whatever it is. All of those things serve together to bring about a kind of confidence, kind of potentially, right? Like life is messy. So we're talking a little bit idyllic, but just to give you the picture. And um, yeah, I mean, I think I think um, then you're taking in and putting out in smaller doses than, than just like a static, like I'm going to be awesome and I can do anything that I want. And then you're paralyzed by that very statement because you know you can't, not in a moment. You might be able to do something well, but it's going to take time. Most of the people you admire took a lifetime. And the amount of podcasts or radio shows that I've listened to in the last four months on celebrities that have landed in severe discontent mm-hmm. because they operated this way and got what they wanted and they're miserable yeah. proves the point. I mean, just look at how discontent celebrities are, by and large. Mm-hmm. It means that there's something that's amiss in the mix of of some things that work well. Yeah. I mean, also like think about any sort of movie where you've got somebody, I think in sports movies, again, where like the person, like they're at the top of their field and they're really great at it, but they're just not, they just don't care anymore. They have to have that person that helps them open their eyes to why they loved it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right. There's those things are for a reason. Sure. Right. Um, and I think when we talk about, uh, responsibility, like there is something actually very freeing, not constricting about Mm -hmm. this idea of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, because as you're talking, one of the things uh, that's sticking out is something we've mentioned in other episodes before about the fact that we have a very easy uh, rhythm that we can fall back into where we make artistic production highly based on industrial terminology. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not being efficient in my work. I'm not doing enough. I'm not producing. I'm yeah. not doing this. And we lose sight of a larger picture mm-hmm. that this is a part of of life mm-hmm. where it's not a production cycle yeah. where we're trying to constantly making th- make things more more efficient or optimized or churn this out or do that you know and it's a uh, and it's funny because it it feels like at times when we are the most productive mm-hmm. it feels like we're being the best artist or designer because we're just making more stuff yeah, we're yeah, seeing yeah. the effects of it that's right right um but you know even you know with the with the garden metaphor like the garden is not productive just at harvest time that's right it's, it's everything that it's yeah, it's all time. It's at different levels. Like I've been making a lot of work right now yeah. in my own studio, but I haven't, I've been literally practicing what we're talking about. So I've been teaching online, doing all, all of my work at VCU, spending a lot more time with my family um, for obvious reasons. And so, but because there's a level of shutdown with Shaco art space, um, that time has just been given over to painting. I've just been painting until I finish things. And so I've just been posting paintings on Instagram and, um, you know, it's kind of weird in hindsight. People will be like, Oh, you're making a lot, but it it hasn't been in that headspace. So I've just been making whatever I want to make. Yeah. Uh, and then responsibly. So like, and for me, responsibility in this context looks like 
what are my resources? What is my budget? I don't have money to spend in, on a bunch of stuff. So I'm working with what I've already have panels. I've already built. Um, yeah, I mean like, uh, past constraints that I, I haven't seen through all the way. So bodies of work, two bodies of work that I haven't completed or really want to press into. And so, um, I only have so much paint left. Like there's all these things that I'm like, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to be discontent. I'm going to work responsibly. That means, so that means that even like how I'm using my paint, I'm a little more mindful of the messes I make. Cause I'm not trying to be wasteful. Um, I'm not anxious. So I'm not over making things, I think to prove anything in the process. So like things are just kind of coming a little more easily right now because there's no pressure. I'm not uh, over pressurizing. And so there's a fruitfulness that comes from that that I can be excited about when other people see it because I'm not pressurizing it. Therefore I can receive their responses more freely without, um, prioritizing them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just an interesting moment where that's, that's kind of occurring. Um, but one, I don't know if you got something you want to. No, I was was just gonna, I was just gonna agree with that. Like in terms of my own thing, like, you know, same, I've been building a lot of scrap wood projects, um, that have actually been received fairly well, but they were not even remotely the start of where it was, which is completely different than most of my process. Yeah. Usually my, my early part of my process is completely stymied with what will people think of this, mm-hmm. which is a stupid question to ask before you've even made the thing. That's right. Because I'm like, what will they make of what? That's right. You haven't even done anything. Yeah. It's what will they make head. of the generic vague idea that you have in your head right now? Mm-hmm. Like who cares what they make of that? Yeah. Um, cause it's not real. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because, uh, like, I mean, I even sent you a project I did. Uh, for my son a few weeks back, and you were like, hey, you could probably sell those things. And yeah. I'm like, no, this is literally garbage. <laughs> <laughs> but then I like I keep looking at it, I'm like, no, there's actually something very pleasing about the form. Yeah. Like the fact that the pressure was gone. Yeah. And I could do some work based on the things that I've like conscientiously learned mm-hmm. over the last 20 years. Like means that sometimes those things actually turn into something that's good. Yeah, they're just not, they don't have like they're not pressurized, so the good just kind of pours out. Yeah. And um one of the categories that the catch-all categories, it's like big, broad trajectory. And I know that this will, I know there's people that have a very different philosophy than this. And so I respect that there's a discourse here and uh, tension and maybe even a debate or a disagreement. And so with that, but I would say that the responsibility of makers, designers, and artists is towards what I would call the ends of human flourishing. Mm, yeah. Um, it, so, or humanizing and the opposite would be dehumanizing. So tangential, when you look at, we've said things in the past, but like when you look at amusement, the, um, the awe is to negate musing. Uh So it's a negation of thinking deeply. Yeah. So it's to enter. And so then you kind of smuggle in the equivocation of entertainment. It's just to, to not think deeply and be entertained. Okay. So there's a lot of things that we use that we make that fall under the, the kind of the broad category of entertainment that category is predicated on the hedonist bucket, pleasure. Okay, so for me, I'm not going to make a horror film. Uh-huh. For me, because while it will load up potentially on the hedonist bucket, the purpose and meaning behind it is what? It's to scare. Well, if I hide scaring in the category of um entertainment it's it feels like i'm fine but beneath that it's dehumanizing uh endless expressions of murder 
um, glorify murder are dehumanizing. They're not, that doesn't humanize. And I know that, you know, we can be contrary and say, well, by its very nature, you know, dehumanizing allows us to better understand what it means to be human. And certainly there's probably instances of that. However, generally speaking, um, um, and I've seen scary movies. I'm not, I'm just giving like a really obvious example mm-hmm. because it yeah. would, you know, so, um, um, and I'm trying to s- demand more of us by saying this, like, um, the harder thing to do is to, to build people up without it being sentimental. Yeah. The easier thing to do is to, to tear people down through being dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. So whether it's like the amount of figurative paintings right now that are predicated purely on, uh, sexual expressions of, I mean, I've just seen so many figurative painting and like, I, you know, I got a wide range. I mean, you don't become an artist and not, I mean, I've seen it all like in a way, like you, you, you kind of can't, you know, I'm in admissions. Like, I mean, I've just looked at it so much art. I mean, when, one of the best art schools in the country, like mm-hmm. you don't get here for no reason. Um, having said that, um, it's hard to make things that don't rely on that pleasure category that like kind of just raw pleasure category. Um, it's difficult to make things that actually look to humanize and, and flourish. Like, what does that even mean? Like, yeah. so, I mean, that's a whole discussion that we'd have to have, but, um, I do see a lot of work that is, is, is confusing and dehumanizing. I do think, uh, clarity opens up space for freedom. It helps us to locate difficulties for ourselves personally. And then maybe we can get help in addressing those and, um, have an enriched life. Like, so for me, flourishing is freed up from, um, burdens that seek to dehumanize or oppress, I think is one of the things, but also that lead us into good things that may have constraints as well. So, um, lack of constraints isn't necessarily freedom as I understand it. Oh no. Because so, you know, just to kind of lay out a broad, I wish this should just raise a ton of questions. Like, you know, if you're listening, you should, you're probably squeaming a little bit because, um, there's no way we've covered every possible angle on every number of, you know, ways of making that are valid and, you know, and who's to say, and there's so much there, but, um, when I make things, I'm, I am at least in the most broad sense, I'm asking myself that question. Is this going to like enrich someone or is it going to like, yeah, set them back a little bit psychologically? Is this person going to, you know, am I hiding? Am I, am I, look at, am I making something that has a certain amount of shock value and I'm calling it critical theory and I'm saying this is critical discourse on this image that is resting on the mechanism of shock value to get attention so that I can be esteemed by a certain few as being a valid maker. Like, and then I'm hiding behind that desire and calling it, um, this is, you know, my deep idiosyncratic work on Freud or I don't know, you know, like, um, where we jargon the work because our ends or our goals is something other than the work really having an impact on someone, but more that the work is a means towards me being impacted in such a way that I'm elevated. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that that makes me think of is <clears throat> trying to think, um, you know, there are a few artists that I follow that I see their work and that's about 90% of what they see. Mm-hmm. But what I see, um, most of the artists I follow, though, I'm seeing them before I ever see their work. So it's like, here's my face and here's my work. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're a human and I value that and I esteem that. Um, 
but where's your work? Is your, is, is your work something that like, like show me your work. Right. Um, which is, is kind of difficult at times because, you know, we've talked about, we, we don't want artists to just kind of like have the uniform on mm-hmm. and not actually be doing the work. Yeah. And so I always prefer it when I see the artist lead with their work mm-hmm. and not because I want the person to be less than they are or mm-hmm. anything like that, but because I want to know that the work is something that is actually having a, like a purpose and a use, right? Yeah. There's a reason for it to exist beyond yeah. I want to make myself a visual pat on the back. That's right. You know, and, and, and this is real tempting. And I know, you know, we, we work with, with, with students and early in anybody's career, it's very tempting to just kind of be like, I want to be the person I want to, you know, cause that's where I can make more money and I can mm-hmm. support myself better and I can get into the better galleries. And like, we've seen that, but, um, you know, when we talk about responsibility, it goes beyond just that, mm-hmm. right. It goes beyond the responsibility you have to yourself to be, uh, a famous maker, mm-hmm. right? Um, even if that is kind of a base desire for most of us and what mm-hmm. we're doing at some, at some level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, so there's that level. And then I think that's why we, you know, we had kicked it around like the design thing is like, there are real consequences to work we make that, that shapes whole society. Like I'm thinking about like music genres where, um, whole people appropriate an image and a style and, you know, in a look and an attitude and a posture. And we say, well, there's self-expression. We give these justifications, but then a lot of the people are, are tearing themselves down, um, at the expense of art, um, or, or really, you know, vitalize like, you know, or some, some sort of admixture of both. Like, you know, I, I grew up as a hip hop kid. And so I've seen a lot of both, you know, I've seen a lot of incredible influence shaping. And then you've seen glorifications like you see both it's very you know we talked with this with uh, Wes Taylor a while back on the podcast just like the pluses and minuses but so there's definitely cultural expressions like you see jazz like there's all this great impact jazz has had and then in that you see a lot of heroin drug use and like mm-hmm. these th- things that are synonymous with with being a jazz musician that, that end up being dehumanizing they break down families they the the more uh beholden you are to the drugs the less present you are to the persons that need you the most or, you know, um, I don't know. I was thinking about architecture, man. Like there's utopic modernist art, oh, gosh, brutalist yes. architecture that it's like the stuff the projects are made of and no one's flourishing there. No, I mean like you can, I, I would say you look across most universities that have been around, you know, 1950 or earlier, mm-hmm. you're going to come across some really horrible brutalist architecture. Now mm-hmm. I'm not saying that brutalist architecture is a, as a genre is just terrible. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not on my list of top five. Yeah. But, um, it can be done and made beautiful, but you know, the, the whole fact that like it's kind of founded upon these ideas that, um, we are showing the harshness and the reality of things. Like, I don't need help seeing that. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, that, yeah. I don't know that's productive, right? right. Cause, Cause when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I feel the way my back feels and I see the puffiness in my face, and I, uh, I, I look at the laundry list of things I have to do through the day. I don't need to be reminded about yeah. how harsh life is. Right. And a lot of people living in, you know, there's, we live in the inner city and there's a lot of enrichment and, um, there's, you know, certainly we're all feeling it right now. And, um, there's a lot of folks that are feeling it. Like in my neighborhood, there's people oh, that yeah. are feeling it that have been, they've never not been feeling it. So, um, the responsibility of like the, you know, it's like the great white architect who's like, I'm going to do this architecture and there's, 
minorities and diversities of people that have been living under the harshness of reality over and against that person's, you know, sort of privileged position or whatever. And they know it at such an internalized level. They don't, they don't need an architectural signpost. No. You see what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that's, you know, the, yeah. what the Pruitt ego projects in, in Chicago. Yeah. Like, you know, the, these, these towers yep. that were built that more or less turned into prisons. Yeah. And then you start uh, to see things coming up. So all of those, all the things that happened there and that horrible situation, um, with the, a lot of them were started and perpetuated by the form around them. Right? Yep. And now that's not to say that the architects forced certain actions to happen. But what it is saying is that we do have a responsibility to the space we embody. The effects of the space had affects with yes. such regularity that there is a correlation. Yes. And then it's worth talking about from like a design psychology uh, in terms of the effects. Like what about those brings about this repeatedly when it comes to folks that are living in this socioeconomic right. sort then, of tier. And then beyond that, what about those are so uh, heavy um, and far reaching that any dystopian movie you watch is going to mimic that architecture. That's right. Those cities are going to be like that. You look at Blade Runner. Yeah. You look at, um, you know, upon any you. Of things, it's yep. that type of architecture mm-hmm. and not to harp on architecture. But it is the built environment. Right? Yeah. And so uh, it's easy to see that in the spaces we embody sure. yeah, in terms yeah. of buildings. Love architecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's also, I mean, like, um, you know, Ryan and I have been having conversations about this, this studio I want to build in my backyard. And a lot of the conversations are how does this kind of flow and integrate and feel natural and go into the space. Um, and, you know, some folks might pop into that conversation and be like, do you think y'all are talking about this too much? Do you think you're thinking about it too much? And I would say, no, probably not. Because the conception of the work is hugely important, right? Because the conception of the work uh, doesn't just assume that the work will live, but the work will do something, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to. I don't want to conceive of dead work. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. Yeah, and so it born. doesn't matter if it's uh, a building in my backyard that's a glorified shed. It doesn't matter if it's a client project. It doesn't matter if it's a painting or a sculpture or whatever it is. I want that work to do something, and still, that even pushes at the assumption that then you're actually talking about responsibility. And here's the thing. Gareth doesn't know this yet. <laughs> Where's this going, Ryan? <laughs> but if you support us at a certain level on Patreon, we'll give you some exclusive insights and footage of us getting Gareth's studio built. Yeah, I, I think that's a great. I love that. It's great. Um, it, it also uh, forces a responsibility on me to build the studio, which I wish you could see Ryan laughing right now at what he has just perpetrated. Uh, it's fantastic because I honestly love the idea and hate it at the same time. <laughs> I think it's great. It's called living in the moment so hard that I'm like, I'm just going <laughs> to. No, uh, my wife is going to listen to this and be like, yes, sure. Anything that gets it done. Think about it. It's going to be great, man. People want to see what's going on. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll do like a live twenty four hour feed. We'll just yeah. tap into it. Yeah, and you can It'll be see great. me throwing hands. We have some we have some <laughs> stuff coming. Some at some some fun, or some yes. some enrichers uh, uh, that move in different directions. Some more serious, more lighthearted, in all yes. for the flourishing and all for the building up. So, yeah, we 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 haven't uh, wavered on our commitment to the podcast. We just you know. Um, so anyhow, there you go. Like a, right there, born on the spot, a new That's idea. Great. I just put Gareth on the spot so hard. It's okay. I guess I, I got to go with it. Spot. I mean, yeah. I guess you got to go with it because you did bring me a snack pack today. I did. So I, I like tried to only fair. sweeten you up first. Um, no, no, I mean, but, but I do think that process is interesting. And, uh, 
So yeah, my mind's just seeing it because you live in a very particular street on a very particular neighborhood. Uh, a very with, particular yard. Yeah, very particular yard. There's like things that are, you're taking responsibility for your neighbors. You're thinking about, this is like, you could have the, uh, the pure and justifiable attitude of like, this is my property, I'm gonna do what I want. Yeah. And I wouldn't quibble with that on a certain level. Um, but what you know, you've been doing and what we've been having conversations about is mindful of uh, both the physical beings that are neighbors, but also the neighborhood, mm-hmm. the passerby, the surrounding architecture, you, you know, it's the whole nine. And yeah, it ain't and like also, you got a bunch of money. This is like, yeah, this is uh, a lot of constraints. This is a lot of constraints with a lot of yeah. just pennies. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's it, also considering the responsibility of the future that I'm not going to be the only person that lives in this house. That's exactly right. And at some point, that thing in the backyard can be a detriment somebody else has to deal with yep. or it can be a joy that they can yeah, live with. Yeah, it's a with. gift that they've been, that they inherit that yeah. you pass down that ha- anticipates them in some kind of way. Right. Um, and also maybe anticipates our podcast being recorded there. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Based we'll on see. something, yeah. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness though, um, no, it could be really, it just could really be interesting. It could be yeah. our, our foray into HGTV because who, who wouldn't like to see Shaka Art speak on HGTV? Yet another Can I raise my hand? program that we're not sponsored by. <laughs> we're not sponsored by HGTV. We're not sponsored by Taco Bell. I mean, honestly, it would be pretty cool if on HGTV you saw like the actual life of an artist and not yeah. somebody who just yes. like, collected enough box tops from a cereal company and they were like, yeah. oh, I'm an interior decorator. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. You know, interior Sorry decorators. Sorry y'all under the bus. Yeah, we love interior decorators when they're good. Yeah. Um, I like interior designers better. Interior designers better. Yeah. <laughs> They do a lot of decorating, though. They do, um, but at least yeah. any, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like life cycles to art where art moves into the land of kitsch, yes, and then it it becomes uh, consumed by the masses, which is Clement Greenberg's big fear. Yeah. Um, but so are you saying we should all be just like stuck up? No, I, I actually yeah, that's exactly right. I <laughs> that's, think that's we where people be, go, right? Well, yeah. we can't go to the masses, so we yeah, gotta yeah. be gotta be pricks. Yeah, that. So I think I, I, that's a great point, Gareth. I think that that's like what I wrestle with, which is. There's the um, elitism removal, or there's the remove, not the removal, but the differentiation through deeper, you know, uh, kind of more of a humble assessment of your your shortcomings and a greater demand for character to be a part of uh, kind yeah. of a virtue, a responsibility taking, because that differentiation can reverberate and resound just as much as being elitist and oppressive. Oh, yeah. But one doesn't allow for you to learn or grow into the other is an invitation into it. So it's sort of like the leader who is like so good at what they do, but so humble about it. You're just like, I got to, I got to work. I got to step up yeah. that that's sort of what I think culture makers should be. Not so much the elitist. And I think that's where Greenberg failed. If you could say that like with someone like a Pollock, because Pollock probably was more of a working class person that didn't have an elitist framework. And so when he was brought into the elitist framework, it made him feel like a fraud. Mm. Now, if, if, if it was about character and virtue, it would have compelled him the other way. I'm, I'm making this, I'm speculating, who can speculate? But I can imagine a situation where the framework's different. Therefore, he doesn't have to both be this uh, great painter, which I actually think that he was, uh, despite what some people will say that I just think, don't think that they understand the period and why that particular body of work was made. Um, and the pressure to be uh, an eccentric, to be at the forefront of avant-gardism um, is not tenable is the point. It, 
very few people thrive in that space. That's the point. But um, more people thrive in humility. And so if there was the alternative, he could have been making that work um, with the galleries showing it and all of that, but with categories that didn't demand that he escape into alcoholism and, and womanizing, right? And, mm-hmm. and, um, and depression and suicide because he was so fraudulent in his mind. You know, he had talked about this, like, um, and I don't know. So work ascending from a pre-assigned plateau of loftiness means that your work is there to uphold to some level that you, you don't even really believe yourself. Um, work that ascends from, um, a lowly place or an ordinary place, it's kind of easier to stay humble and appreciate, uh, if you had to compare the two, you know, like if I, if I, if, you know, I don't know, man, like the take the podcast done. Okay. Um, better than we expected and sooner than we expected in some respects. So, um, but none of that dislodged us from being who we are Yeah, yeah, because it was never about, um, celebrity or, or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Like none of that's on the table. So like, I, I'm not trying to, you know, lose our place where we stand in the world is, is the yeah. people that we are. And, um, so I can appreciate the little bit that we do as an, uh, reaching a wider audience without it getting to my head. Oh yeah. Um, for yeah. the most part. Right. Um, if it was pressure to get us celebrity and, um, ascendancy and money and, um, I'd be miserable. Mm-hmm because there'd never be enough and uh, the motivations would choke out the quality of the work or the sincerity of the work. Right. And uh, I think that's what happens. Yeah. I mean, um, from this, you know, if if people are kind of saying like, all right, there's a lot of stuff here. You definitely make me think, but like, how do you, how do you start to summarize like what this kind of responsibility looks like? Mm hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's almost like uh, concentric circles, like it's ripples, right? It's, it's the rock. Elli- it's elliptical. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just stuff that kind of. I mean, it changes, but I think that there's some core stuff to responsibility, right? Um, we talk a lot, folks talk a lot about like personal responsibility, mm-hmm. right? And I think that there is some personal responsibility within the arts, and so you think about it almost as like the responsibility you have to yourself as a maker, the responsibility you have to your community as a maker and then the responsibility you have to the field as a maker. Um, at least that's, that, that's kind of the framework I have for understanding the responsibility of my work. So when I think about my responsibility as a maker, I have a responsibility to be, to be curious always about things in general. Um, but also the things that I'm making or desire to make, um, the processes that I can use to make things, mm-hmm. um, you know, materials, techniques, things like that. Um, I have a responsibility to myself um, to not let myself tell me that I've done enough in some mm-hmm. ways, right? To not let myself be the person who gives me the scapegoat sort of thing. To be like, oh, well, you it's gotten a little hard. You've yeah. done enough. Yeah. So I've got a responsibility to not listen to myself sometimes. Right. And just say, no, actually, it's hard because I might be actually getting at something. Right. So I should push into that. Mm-hmm. Um, then when I talk about, like, responsibility to my community gets a lot to the humanization, you know, are you building or are you destroying? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I say those as very kind of broad oblique terms because there are times where destroying actually helps build. Totally. Right. Where we point yep. out the, the, I the just sanded, sanded a painting last night. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I mentioned in the last episode, uh, we had an artist that talked about the 15 paintings she had before the surface yeah. was actually what she felt okay having out there. Yep. Um, 
So that's the responsibility I have to my community as well. Um, and then the responsibility to the larger field is, am I, am I doing things that are actually engaging mm-hmm. with a larger culture? Am I understanding that they, that these objects would live beyond me, that mm-hmm. they don't have to just be a snarky reaction to something, um, that they're not just an ironic distillation of a momentary feeling. Um, but are they something that maybe could be important to somebody enough to have in their home for a period? Yeah. You know, to, to want to, you know, exchange something for, whether that's money or some other piece of art. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how I understand responsibility for me and mm-hmm. what I do. Um, and I think it's probably a place where a lot of other folks could kind of sit and say, no, those all sound fairly reasonable or yeah. maybe yeah. not. And I would add, maybe add, just build on that, like some just circulating thoughts that I have is like, you know, taking responsibility as a maker is like also meaning there's a time to couch surf and there's a time to take big risks. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a time to scale down, take a job. Okay. So here's the thing I have, especially in the fine arts at VCU, I've seen a lot of artists burn bright for a moment and then disappear. Mm -hmm. And the gallery systems are made to promote that. Right. So the, um, the market has worked to promote that. And so what you get is artists that get out of MFAs and they couch surf and they make it big for a moment and then there, there's no longevity because they, they're not, they haven't cultivated a practice to, to, to work in an enduring way. And I've seen a lot of artists do that. And then they, be, you know, not in a bad way, but like they become carpenters. They become, they just start doing other stuff. And it's interesting that they move to things that allow for them to exercise their abilities in ordinary ways uh, where they can gain a job and, and they just kind of drift into anonymity. And I applaud that. But I wonder if that would, be different if their expectations had a more uh, long view, ordinary sense like this so that you could practice taking responsibility. And what I mean by that is like, you know, instead of hastily going to New York as a paradigm, what does it mean to just work a job and uh, make part-time to whatever you can and let that dictate what you make and let that, that space hone in um, kind of your body of work, let those constraints work you until you have work. Um, uh, you say it again, let the constraints work you until you have work, uh, out, out artwork work that comes out of, uh, the life constraints, the season you're in where you're like, I got to pay my bills. I have to be able to eat well because I don't want to live as an anxious artist who then makes anxious work, who then talks about it anxiously and starts to capitulate to watchers that artists are anxious making anxiety driven work. Now, if you're doing that, so be it. I don't, I'm not judging it per se, but I am saying is I'm inviting uh, us to think about this and say like, there's options. So give you an example. When, when I had, um, my wife was pregnant with my first daughter, Ava, just out of grad school and I was supposed to go to New York, I was supposed to go to Brooklyn. I had a show in Philadelphia and I had a solo show in Texas set up and I had to shut both those shows down. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do them and I couldn't afford it. I had to make a decision to take care of my kid and, you know, coming and so no studio. Um, we moved everything into an apart one bedroom apartment and um, I couldn't buy any art supplies uh, because I couldn't justify spending the money. I had these big sculptures. I had to throw away most of my grad work, which was really difficult, oh, but I had nowhere to put it. I had yeah. big sculptures and paintings and things. And so um, one of the things that I had to do is look at, I looked at my 
I had a desk, a folding desk. I had a set of colors and I had uh, scrap wood and I made panels that could fit on the desk. And I was like, I'm going to make panels that can fit in a desk, fit in a car or, or I can carry. Cause I didn't have a car, but I knew if I had to get a, a work somewhere, someone could, and I didn't want to, I couldn't afford a truck. So I let these things determine I didn't have enough paint. So I started making these one and two color border paintings with black and white in the center is what I had. I let the constraints work me into the work that I made. And what happened was that's the work that oddly enough I make now that I'm, I have a certain kind of recognition for. Um, I could have never seen that. I didn't know that that's what was happening. I was just being responsible with what my opportunities were. And I was like, kind of like, uh, leading into the, the constraints. Like, so like I've been making big work. So the desk was all I could work on. I know where the space to. And so it kind of uh, forced my brain into thinking that way. And rather than complaining about it, I just embraced it as my opportunity. You know, I just moved out of a big studio at VCU. I had this big grad studio. It was the biggest one in, in the painting department. You know, that's why I came to VCU. They had great studios. And uh, so all that to say, um, it's really interesting that now I'm, I got a great studio and I'm making this kind of work yeah. with more maturity and conviction. And it started by taking responsibility, both for my health, for my dinner table, for my bills, for my wife, and for the emergence of my first child. All of those served to put me in the frame of mind to do Shaco Art Space. Mm-hmm. Like, like there's an outflow that has been sort of stewarded, you yeah. know. And I, I'm not saying it's all gone well and I've done everything great, but it is, it isn't. Uh, it's been a perseverant life. Like I, I kind of was like tripping out. Like I got a bunch of paintings back from California, and it dawned on me. It's like I've been doing this since like, like seriously, since like 1998 in general since 1996 and I've been making art and saying I want to be an artist since I was five. But so over 20 plus years of making art and, um, there's something about crossing that threshold, seeing people struggle with, you know, like there's people that went to residencies and were resume busters for two years, man. They're just not making art anymore. Yeah. And I didn't do that but I'm sitting here and we're doing this and I'm, it's like, it's interesting. It's just interesting to see the contrast. And I'm not saying I'm so greater, but it's just like this side of the story is rarely publicized because you can't put it into a um, window display, you know, that just pops up and says rock star. You, you can't, it doesn't fit in that way. It's, it's not yeah. that kind of thing. Um, it It's too kind of plotty, just kind of plots along and, you know, it's a lot of ordinariness. Mm-hmm. It's hard to kind of promote ordinariness. Hard to, <laughs> yeah, the only way yeah. you can start to appreciate it is to be around long enough to realize, oh crap, that's a lot of stuff. And that impacted this. And, you know, and even Laura and I and you guys, you, you and Callie, like we kind of marvel at sort of the outworking of our diligence. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I say that, I guess I, I, don't, I feel like I'm not very clear today, but I just say that to say, um, we, you know, I can say for myself, I've been living this out for a long time now and there's a relief, you know? So when I'm in my studio, like I'm relieved, I'm like, this is crazy. Like I, I'm not worried about anything as far as like being an artist. Like I'm, I'm, it's easy for me to think about responsibility. It's easy for me to understand the value and meaning. And I'm thankful for it because it's given me a life, you know? I mean, there's more to it than that, but I mean, you I know. mean like one of the number one fears of all people, um, 
above death is public speaking. Yeah. Right. And why are we fearful of that? We're fearful of it because people will judge us people. We won't do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Right. But then we, we open arms, embrace that and bring that into our professional practice as artists. Um, and just assume it doesn't have an effect. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think exactly right. When, when you get to that place where you just can kind of accept this and say, you know, I'm I'm an artist, I'm a designer, this is what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, this is how it works. Um, and I don't need that approval. I, It'd be nice. You yeah. I love it. I want people to like my work. Sure. Um, but when that goes away, like it, it's amazing. You actually can step into making mm -hmm. what, for what feels like the first time mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. um, like that's the spot I think where a lot of folks talk about, um, you know, when that goes away, you get to a place where they're like, it was the most clear minded I've ever been mm -hmm. about what I did. Uh, because it gets to be your voice. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. you. It's not the 5,000 other voices yeah. in your head. It's a relief. Away. There's contentment. There's peace. There's a kind of amazement, um, yeah. Properly scaled amazement. You're just kind of like, wow, what a what a privileged opportunity, what a what a gift. Um, and it's yeah. easier to give it away when when it's there. It's easier to share share with others and break bread with others in that kind of way, and um, and see then the fruit of it go forward, like that people actually um, are benefited in some kind of way, or enriched, or impacted, or resonated. However you want to talk about it, there's a million different ways, and. Those get specific to me when we're talking about specific people and specific works of art, which, you know, we, we never are in, on a podcast because we're not standing in front of a, a work or a person right. to me. You know, that, that level of conversation is here, you know, if folks are around. But um, but, in, but in broad general terms, um, I think those spaces is, are where partnerships kick off and, you know, the, you get architects and designers and makers sort of in agreement about these things. And I think, you know, we can, we can build, um, sort of culture and society with healthy rhythms for, um, like I, I, one of the things I like about gardens is they, they decay and then they come back. Yeah. They, they have life cycles. And I think like, that's maybe something that we need to really think about. And I think this time is showing us is that we have, uh, utopic permanence ambitions, laden hopes for permanence in a way that maybe, dynamic life doesn't afford in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that has to be built into the rhythms of our creativity, our institutions and so on. Like maybe that's something that has to be anticipated with greater clarity and vision. And, uh, I don't know what that should look like, but, um, but I do think it entails some of what we're talking about, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, and, and, and if this sounds, you know, attractive, it sounds like something that you've experienced, um, or that makes sense. I would say my encouragement to you is like, just find a small way to like step into responsibility mm -hmm. in your art. Uh, and, and I think for a lot of us, it starts about even just thinking about like, what does that look like for my making? Yeah. It could be like making 10 things instead of just making one. It could be like, I'm going to commit to 20 of these Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to move past my initial idea. I'm going to step in and, and make 20 and I'm going to sit with them and I'm going to let other people see, I'm going to get feedback yeah. and, and gain an understanding of, what they do, um, as opposed to just like, I want to make one and see, like, depending on where you're at, like, um, create some constraints for yourself that are, that are, um, that are generative towards, um, some kind of mutual understanding for yourself and for others that, uh, invites people into the process and helps you, uh, grow into what you're making. Yeah. Um, that could be, those are, that's an example. Um, don't be, extreme with your goals. Yeah. I know that sounds so backwards, but what I'm saying is like, 
if you're, you know, if you're the one person's like, I always knew I was going to be famous. I know those people exist and I know those people, there's people that get famous. Like that's true. And so that's you do your thing. But, um, know your frame. Like a lot of you feel like that's the only way you can justify your action. So you set goals that you don't even really care about. You just want the peace to make and set, set smaller goals for yourself than fame or, you know, showing at the Whitney. Um, yes, just set a goal to say, I'm going to make 10 paintings or 10 sculptures using five colors that deal with this particular subject. And I'm going to see them all through to a certain level of completion. I'm not going to bow out on this or, you know, I'm going to finish a comic book or, um, you know, actually do it, finish it, make it all the way through, you know, 11, 12 pages, whatever, um, you know, uh, design, answer some, you know, if you're an aspiring designer and even done much work, answer some ads on Craigslist or something. I mean, just start, yeah. start where someone is looking for something. Um, I'll give you an example. My daughter is 10. I got to help her today. Actually. Um, I'm reminding myself right now. It's hilarious. But she she wants to work. She's gotten interested in working, you know, and so she wants the job. And she's like, how can I do this? I'm not old enough. And she wants to pull weeds for neighbors. So she's designed on the computer a, a flyer for neighbors for to offer her services. That's awesome. And so I, I'm going to be drawing up a con. She got her first client that wants to hire her. And so we're I'm going to teach her how to make an invoice. That's great. So we're not just like. Because I'm like, why does she need to wait to learn how to be more responsible and in right. taking serious the opportunity? Like, why not get that now when she's 10? Because then it'll be second nature to her when she's like 20. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and like, she won't be contending with learning that. Let's be part of the DNA. So we're going to sit down today and work out her invoice. So that way, because she could just go knock on the door and say, do you need weed, weeds pull? And someone would say yes. Or she can brand out and think visually and correspondent with what she's doing. Yep. And she can think about how that communicates too. And then, and she, she could just do that, but also then she can do the invoice. So then she could physically see what it means to write on paper. You are hiring me for this much work. I agree to do this much work for this much cost. And that can tangibilize an accountability and a responsibility to her work. And so she can get at a fullness yeah. that is meaningful, that benefits others. And um, I know that's like a kid thing, but like those are goals we just worked out together as a way of helping her. It's like a lattice work that helps her grow up into adulthood, yeah, um, into maturity, if you will. And as artists, we're always looking to mature into greater depths so or greater freedoms. And, um, you know, so for you, it's like maybe you need to drop a contract Yep, and mm-hmm. know what it means to say that we've agreed to this. I'm going to make these lo- logos for you, and it's going to cost this much money. Like, set that goal for yourself, and then do it again. And you know, I mean, um, you know, if you're a ceramic artist and you're just working on on um, functional forms, like demand more of the functional form, um, demand more of your glazes, or or what would it look like for you to make a line of forms that are not functional where, where their function is sealed off mm-hmm. and while working on a, a form, I don't, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, there's oh, like, yeah. there's these quite like, um, there's these provocative practices that can help mature your work in responsible ways. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is just, it's just step into it, yeah. right? No matter what small or big way you can yeah. do it, like you can yeah, step yeah. into it. And then if you don't know what that step looks like, yeah. Do you like we uh, we've talked about it several times? You know, we we really believe in knowing and being known. Yeah. 
So reach out to other folks. Yeah. And if I say it one more time, just to be clear, I guess, and maybe this is a poor way to close, but think about what, like, I, I, I like the, cha- I mean, this is maybe just convenient dad talk. I like the challenge of making art that a critic can look at in, in, or, you know, like a high, a seasoned eye can look at mm-hmm. and, and kind of be into, but that my like five, seven and 10 year old can look at, look at and be into. Yeah. And, um, so I just think like, you know yourself, but if you're constantly, uh, defaulting to stuff where it just looks like, um, shock value, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not really like, you're like, if you ask, what will this produce in someone? Uh-huh. Ask that question of your work. What will it produce in someone? And don't lie to yourself. You know, if I don't lie to myself, some of my work at most produces a little blip of, of, uh, visual joy. I have to deal with that. I've decided what I think about that. Is that worth it? Um, ask yourself what what is what is the real impact of my work um, in an honest way? What do I really want this to do? And um, you know, I think that's part of what it means to take responsibility. Like, yeah. what do you want? What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want your people to remember you by? Are you the person who made nightmares for everybody else? I don't know. I, I just don't know. I think that's overrated, and I just wonder. You know, I could go on. I, w- I mean, I, you know, maybe some other day we'll just do another podcast just on that because it just sounds like you're being a being a nitpicky jerk. But um, I think we're living long enough to see that the impact of our personal expressions has far more shaping influence over society than I think we thought. And I need yeah. to do some research on that. Like, I need to really sit down and just unpack some solid trends and examples and some data to to quantify that. Um, but it is there. Um, and so I think that's part of the taking of responsibility. What yeah. do I want to bring into the world? Well, that's huge. And I think it's a great question to kind of end on because it's yeah. something I think we should sit and ponder with. Mm-hmm. Not a, not not ignore it and try to say, oh, let me go look at something else real quick so I forget that and feel the, the kind of weight of a, of a real question. But mm-hmm. I think it's a good question to sit with mm-hmm. um, because it's not like we're doing something um, – it's not like we're doing something of such little importance that we can gloss over that and just say, mm-hmm. I don't need to worry about it. Yep. Um, we're doing something very important. So very important questions come into that. So mm-hmm. I think it's a great way. So, um, you know, as always, hit us up with stuff you have. Check us out on Patreon. We'd love to uh, receive any support from you. That'd be yes, great. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, as always, if you've got ideas for us for things we can talk about, uh, topics we can bring up, please let us know. We're yep. happy to do it. Uh, we love you all. Great audience. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you next time. Peace. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.